Conversate Trans is an intergenerational podcast series exploring trans culture. The podcast, developed by the Sterlings Collective with funding from Create in collaboration with Tenny, with continued participation of the trans community, explores invisible histories and culture through intergenerational dialogue and archival materials. Having worked closely with members of the trans community of the last two years, the collective recognized the need for intergenerational dialogue and community care for trans people, and this podcast aims to be one part of this. Hi, I'm Jules. And I'm Alexandra. And welcome to this episode of Come to Say Trans, where we have our guest, Amru Al-Khadi, who's a writer, performer, and non-binary drag queen unicorn, whose memoir is out, and it is called Life as a Unicorn. A journey from shame to pride and everything in between with Fourth Estate in the UK, and it's also on Harbeck in America currently. So thank you so much for joining us this week. You're like an amazing person and I'm so glad you've come to talk to oh, us. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Yes. And I did read your book. I'm not just plugging it because I'm like, yes, I like <laughs> thought it was amazing. And Pardon? I thought it was amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And I'm just wondering, since you got like a Polari, the first book award, mm. I wonder, is it like weird to get awarded like a big prize to be like your memoir I've always wondered like that when people get accolades to writing their own like life story what does that feel like Hmm, that's interesting I mean I suppose like with a memoir versus like an autobiography I do think they're slightly different things and with a memoir although it is sort of autobiographical it kind of um there is a sort of literary intention you know you're kind of maybe trying to demonstrate one idea as fully as possible so you know I I, you know obviously like my life is much more expansive than what's in the book but I chose very kind of specific moments to kind of really relay a feeling of you know what intersectionality means and also you know what it feels like to not belong and so even though it's all true and autobiographical, the structuring of it and deciding what went where, what went where and stuff, like it was quite a literary exercise, which is why it kind of went with a literary imprint at HarperCollins because, you know, we approached it in terms of, you know, what's the story and what's the narrative. So you know, even though it's from life, you know, you do have to structure it like a novel somewhat. Okay, yes. And speaking of that, I guess, novel feeling, I loved how you started it with you and drag with your performance. I mean, your drag troupe denim and you were performing at the Fringe, I believe, a couple of years ago. Mm. And you were, I think it was when you were starting to do the I Am Islam followed by the Islamic Culture Prayer Mix with Lady Gaga. And you saw those like Muslim women in the center. And I was just wondering, you explained it so beautifully, just that like feeling of, I guess, fear, but then like love and acceptance that woman at the end came to you. Is that still something that resonates with you having like told it and retold it and it being like years from now? Yeah, it was actually four years ago because it was okay, 2017 yeah. and um, there's kind of been no performances really for two years because yes. of the whole situation, which has sucked. Um, yeah, I mean... I definitely return to that kind of, you know, 
for those people who haven't read the book, you know, I'm doing a kind of like very transgressive performance where I'm sort of breaking up with Allah through a song and, you know, I'm singing the call to prayer, but it, it's remixed with Lady Gaga's Bad Romance because like I'm in the show, I'm so high. I can't tell whether I'm like at a mosque or a chemsex party because it's like all about punishment and pleasure and that That's kind great. of stuff. So it's like really sort of out there. And I've been used to just by virtue of kind of what Edinburgh is like only having um, mostly white performers, white white audiences, you know, kind of mm-hmm. white liberal audiences who wanted to kind of get, watch a bit of diversity or whatever. And so I was a little bit surprised when there were six Muslim women in the front row of the show. Um, and I assumed that they were hating it and finding it really offensive because of what I had experienced growing up and my own sort of issues. And then it turned out, that they actually really loved it, which made me think, oh, right, I need to actually, you know, was I being Islamophobic? Was I sort of um, assuming their intent or their reaction because of my own experiences and actually they were there to love it? And yeah, I um, I, I wanted, it does come back in basically everything I write because I think it's a really, um, was a kind of life-changing example of why what happened in your past doesn't necessarily have to um, dictate what's sort of happening in your present or in your future because what I was experiencing in the show was six sort of avatars of my mother hating the performance and so I could only view the interaction through that prism of my own sort of negative life. And actually they were there to really kind of love the performance and to enjoy it, which is an experience I had um, almost shut myself off from having because of my own past traumas. And so it was a good example of actually, for me, like your trauma or difficulty doesn't, it, it doesn't have to repeat itself all the time. You can break the cycle. And that was the breaking of that cycle for me. And so, yeah, I suppose it does come back in a lot of my work and it's always really interesting how much it resonates with people, that particular episode. Okay. Yes. I guess some of that was me being, seeing it through my own lens, not still having quite negative experiences with people. Hmm. So it does make sense that it's like this freeing moment. This what moment? It's a freeing moment that you had that it wasn't like a, you shouldn't be doing this, bitch. It was mm. like a yes, girl. Yeah. <laughs> Not just a yes, girl, but yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I think it's like, I think especially like as queer or, you know, or gender fluid or just non-conforming people, we're trained to sort of expect um, rejection or violence. or And so we're kind of on auto alert all the time. You know, you just assume bad intent. And obviously I think the internet and all that really amplifies how much of that there is. But actually, I've I've just kind of learned to open myself up to the fact that there's actually a lot more love out there than I had previously thought. But you have to allow yourself to slightly risk it. Um, And that was a real lesson for me because I actually didn't want to meet them, the women in the show, because I assumed that they were hating it. And so when the usher told me, that they wanted to talk to me. I thought they were coming to scream at me and tell me how much I defended their religion and stuff. So I was 
about to go home and just cry and think I'd had the worst night of my life when actually all they wanted to tell me was how much they enjoyed the performance. And I always think like, God, thank God I did go and talk to them because otherwise, you know, in my experience, it would just be a kind of affirmation of a negative feeling that sort of runs my life. Would you like to say anything, Alexandra? Sorry, I'm just like really interested in listening to you guys. But um because like I, I guess I haven't really read books or listened to music, so I'm not like familiar with your kind of work. Mm-hmm. But um I do I do relate to the kind of I, I, I don't know what you kind of call it, internal Islamophobia, internalized. Because mm-hmm. I have kind of experienced that around being trans. Mm-hmm. Um and maybe like sometimes expecting the the kind of negativity especially from things I work on. And I'm very like, like this podcast, I'm very nervous a lot of time when I share it with my friends. Mm-hmm. But um, I do think like, yeah, like, like you kind of have to put it out there and kind of put out the, the positivity and the love kind of side of it. Yeah. To get that back to you, I think, which I guess is just what you're saying. Totally. It's hard though. Yeah. Um, because you kind of have to open yourself up for rejection. I think, especially if you have had a lot of like past trauma, I mean, like you're kind of saying about your mom, my mom was kind of similar with a lot of, um, ju- just like, um, not even maybe negativity, but just like, you know, people are going to reject you, you know, your life that is going to be so negative. much harder. Yeah. Hmm. Well, speaking of hard things, I know you have like a unicorn tattoo and, what? Sorry. I'm trying to transition. <laughs> Just speaking of hard things, like I know a unicorn has a hard horn, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I love how you in. I guess you're just writing that it encapsulates your intersectional identities of like cl- your culture, class, gender, and racial groups, and you can't like comprehend one without completely understanding the other. But when did you become to love like unicorns? Was it as like a child? Because I never thought of them as like a thing that could represent like people and culture and, and identities like you have. Mm. I don't, I can't really remember when, to be honest. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't like, I didn't have um, a sort of childhood obsession, sort of like princess Polly type okay. unicorns. And I feel like I was actually just like a mighty hoopla and like most of the unicorn representation is really sort of, um, childish and like glittery and stuff but when I was doing history of art at university I did quite like medieval work and in a lot of medieval um, iconography like the unicorns they're not sort of whimsical or sort of playful in the way that like they're much more kind of often they're kind of wounded or they're being made fun of or like you know, they're sort of this kind of weirdo, weird animal that is sort of seen as quite scary and beautiful and they're quite sort of muscly and but often deformed. And so I always thought of unicorn as this sort of, like, I suppose the horn is probably seen it must have been seen in the medieval times anyway as this massive deformity but now everyone thinks it's what makes it kind of really special and iconic because it's like this special horse with a horn and so i just had always kind of identified with 
the unicorn as being this sort of like magical outsider that gets a lot of violence just because like, you know, they may be seem to have this sort of dunce-like horn and definitely medieval renderings. That's how it comes out. But actually the horn is probably the thing that makes them really, really strong. And, and so I just feel like they kind of encapsulate like the contradictory qualities of sometimes existing as a queer person where you're like really powerful, but really vulnerable at the same time. And you're kind of an outsider, but you're also really special and people keep looking at you. And sometimes you love that. And sometimes you just want to hide your horn. And I just, that's why I like the unicorn, not because it's like, Oh, I'm a fab unicorn, but just much more like, I just think they encapsulate that sort of state of contradiction. Sometimes that being queer is. I kind of feel similar, but about like horror. Horror. Kind of stuff. Yeah. Because, um, one one thing in particular that I, I read before, it was like an online horror story, but from the point of like this eldritch abomination, like, you know, like, like just this clump of like flesh and like monstrousness. It wasn't really, it didn't have a form, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. um, it's kind of like its diary as it becomes kind of, as it starts to understand empathy and it kind of realizes that it, it wishes it was just a human. It just wants to be like a normal human girl. Right. Exactly. And it was experiencing gender dysphoria and like, referring to itself in very derogatory ways and like for me that was really really relatable because like you know it was like i'm just this clump of horror horror tissue and like flesh Mm -hmm. and i'm like that's how it feels sometimes before you transition or when you're you know you feel like your body is wrong and everything about you is wrong but there's also like this this kind of contradiction where horror is very powerful like you think of this monster it's like a powerful monster i mean yeah i kind of kind of strengthen that in a way I think someone needs to make a horror film about um, gender criticals in the U in the UK. To be honest, yeah. someone needs to do a massive horror film about just their their fanaticism. I personally feel I feel yeah. like a trans person needs to sort of dissect what's going on because really, I feel like trans people at the moment are being painted as these kind of monsters, but they're the most. I don't know. I just really hate what's happening in the UK. I'm actually. I mean, you know, I'm sure you must be as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, isn't that the story of Frankenstein? Like, exactly. Everyone was harassing him, but he, I, I, I don't, I've never read the original, but like, usually it's, he's been treated as the monster when really he's more the victim. Yeah, everyone else has made him. Yeah, exactly. He's more the victim. Exactly. Um, anyway, but yeah, no, I know what you mean about horror. That's what I love about it. And to be honest, one second, my phone, my thing's just about to run out of battery, which is... Okay. Um, there we go. Um, that's also sort of similar to what I feel about drag, to be honest, because, um, you know, with drag, you're kind of accentuating things about yourself that you were previously told were problematic. So, you're, you know, maybe femininity or you're too much or whatever, and, you know you know, when I'm in gay clubs and I'm often read as sort of cis male, even though I'm not like mm-hmm. people often sort of be like, Oh, I don't want to get with you. You're too femme. You're too this, you're too do that. And then in drag, you can kind of take those things and accentuate them. And actually the, you're the, the, you highlight them as the best qualities about you. And so I am really interested in it. Also, I think drag is reminds me of unicorns in that, like, it's again that it's a really powerful medium, but it's also 
entrenched in vulnerability because you're kind of taking the most vulnerable bit about yourself and you're turning it into your strength and that's why i love watching drag queens because they really toe the line of like they're really powerful but like there is a, a a complete raw vulnerability to what they're doing i find it really fascinating that, yeah. that's really yeah sorry girls no, you can go i i was just gonna say that's cool and interesting like but, yeah because even seeing drag queens sometimes i've been like the veneer between what they're trying to be and who they actually are is so thin sometimes. I'm not sure, like, I could do that, but it is so, like, courageous and they're just full of, like, this conviction. Mm. It's like, I'm like, oh, drag queens are amazing. Mm, I agree. They're, like, a gift. I really, like... Oh, sorry, Jales. I'm gonna go again. Um, Yeah, but I do feel like there's a lot of that in... um, Sorry, I, that's something I quite like in art is like when you kind of take the ugly thing and accentuate it or mm. um, I know there's a type of craft where they kind of take broken objects and repair them or make them into something new. I can't remember yeah. the guy who was famous for that. But that, that well, the kind of Japanese pottery um, where yeah. the smashes yeah. you put the pieces back together but with gold leaf um yeah that that's that's one of them and then there was a guy i forget his name he's an american guy who would like go to kind of scrap shop i don't know what you call them uh well i do i forgot what you call them like secondhand yeah and like secondhand shops and stuff like that and pick up the kind of broken stuff and then turn them into sculptures and like he would even take parts i think make like moving mechanisms with them like um you know those like little boxes where you, you twist the handle and they all move around and and, um, Are they like clockwork or is that something else? Uh, I don't know. I, I know there's a specific name for them. Like Puzzle Box? No, not Puzzle Box. <gasps> Ooh, like Hellraiser. Yeah, I just, I love that kind of art where it's like you take the kind of ugly or the broken and you kind of highlight the, the, the beauty in it. Yeah. Like that, that to me is really inspiring. And I think that like if you can do that well, it can be so, so powerful. Mm, totally. Wait, and speaking of drag, have you gotten a chance? I think you would have with the UK's restrictions to perform again in drag since after lockdown. I've done a, f- I've done a few little gigs here and there um, just to sort of, I actually was fortunate to sort of curate a weekend at the South Bank um, uh, in early August, which was sort of celebrating queer Arab and Muslim work and um, I performed on the Saturday night excerpts of my drag show, um, Quran to Queen, which um, was really, really enjoyable. I mean, I, I'd have to say out of all the things that were mo- was most painful during lockdown was not being able to do drag, just because it's such an essential kind of, um, it's just such a kind of essential part of who I am. And it's a way that I can really sort of express my gender identity and be celebrated in it and also it's just the way that I can feel like most authentic and also like what's so great about drag is you know you do it in front of so many people and you have that connection with other people I also just really love performing I just probably feel most um like I suffer from OCD and quite a lot of mental health problems and so my mind's always like in 20 places at once or I find it quite hard to concentrate actually but weirdly when I'm in drag and I'm on stage in front of people it's, I'm so present and focused and just like connected to the room and connected to myself. And so not having that was really hard, but yeah. And I'm going to be doing my show. Um, uh, it's called Glamour from Quran to Queen at the Soho Theatre 
between the 4th to 9th of October, which I'm really wow. excited about. Amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. I just going to say, hopefully that we'll be able to air this episode before then. Obviously, your mother specifically, but when a drag queen, I've heard some talk and their mother's like, I won't say an oracle, but she's like this haven of femininity and like love. And then in equal parts, obviously the same person can be kind of, I won't say that, the tough, she can equally be someone who brings a lot of disdain to their, their own mm-hmm. child. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was wondering, I'm not going to be like, oh, is it easy to get over that? <laughs> but like, did it take long for you to get to a place where you didn't see your mother as like a combative and more like a person you learned so much from and she like helped inspired you in so many ways? Yeah. Um, so this is like an ongoing okay, yeah. process. Um, you know, it's, I think we all do want it to be simple where I think what's obviously really complicated with family is like, you wish it could be that like you either just completely loved them or you completed hate completely hated them and it was either or but you know it's weird with family you know you can kind of love them even though they can be horrible to you and sometimes you can hate them even though they can be wonderful to you and it's just like this really exhausting conundrum for all of us that that we're related to people that we don't always really love um but my mom is yeah i mean you know it's obviously really detailed in the book that i had a very complicated upbringing and she had a particularly kind of rejectful approach to who i was and it took many different turns but i suppose for me as painful as it was um i don't know i i i personally don't like to hold hate in my body like i think hate does rot you somewhat sometimes you don't have a choice but to just hate someone like you know but and I kind of detail this in the book but um eventually kind of when I was 26 27 so quite a bit you know slightly later in my life that's when I really started getting on with my mom it was pretty savage for most of my 20s you know we barely spoke because of what happened in my childhood but basically when I started to learn more about why she had such a negative response not to forgive it or to excuse it but just to kind of understand um her own perspective it made me realize that she kind of wasn't a pure villain as such but she was also victim to structures of patriarchy and religion and that kind of stuff that made her act in a certain way and so it was easier for me to not just think in my head, oh, my mom's really evil because she said all these horrible things to me, but actually learn what was the context that produced that. And, you know, she said, when I asked her why she had such a problem with me, sort of just wearing dresses and being gender fluid and being a drag queen, and I write about this in the book, but she said very, she said that, you know, she finds it really hard being a woman in... um the Middle East because men often tell her what to do and you know she has quite not much power and she saw my embracing of femininity as someone you know assigned male at birth almost like um I was being celebrated for something she hated which is obviously kind of quite a gender critical response but like I was able to talk to her about it and we were able to just sort of you know have it out and actually I started to learn that 
you know, I think the reason that I love drag and that kind of stuff is I'm actually trying to emulate my mother. And so it's an ongoing process. There's lots of experience, but, but I don't know, like she's a human being and though, you know, she won't watch my shows or read my book or anything like that. When I do see her, I do just try and hold on to the bits about her that um, I love. And actually, you know, as you'll know from reading the book, like, my drag character is really based on how absurd and hilarious she is as a person because she really is a sort of queer icon. She just doesn't really know it. And so, I don't know, drag is very much a way for me to sort of celebrate the bits about her I like and the bits about her that I I find really wonderful. And so I like to focus on these those things rather than the bits that really hurt me just because I just don't want to dwell on that stuff. It happened. I can't do anything about it. I, I don't know, like you you found something, I suppose, in your relationship with your mom that you can use to support yourself. Mm-hmm. Even if, I, I'm not sure how to put it. I guess it's just a way to kind of take control back from like negative experiences. Mm-hmm. Quite a difficult relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, that does take time and understanding between one party at least. And it's not always easy Oh, and your mother, I've seen pictures. She is a gorgeous woman. So like, I know. It's like Sorry, my stunning. Gateway into femininity, to be honest, and into drag. What I, I think was really interesting was when you said, um, I remember what I was going to think of, was when you said, um, oh, sorry, that you realized that she had been a victim of the patriarchy as well or other oppressive systems. Mm. Because I feel like I've heard that a lot from kind of the gender critical folks like that, like one of what you describe about your mom is like what I've heard them kind of describing in that, you know, I mean, JK Rowling, for example, mentioned she'd experienced sexual assault mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and she targets trans women for that. Yes. Yeah. And um, I, I find it bewildering because they're, they're kind of targeting someone who's also a victim of the same thing that kind of her, her trans women are obviously um, victims of sexual assault at a higher rate you know a very yeah i'm <laughs> sorry and, um, yeah i mean i suppose at the core of a lot of the gender critical sort of you know they i think the existential panic that kind of trans people give them is that they feel like trans people are kind of invalidating their suffering somewhat but might but might which i think is so problematic but I suppose it's easier for them to direct their the rage at that kind of suffering from sexual assault or the patriarchy or whatever at a really small vulnerable minority rather than tackle the sort of much bigger beasts. And then I definitely saw that with my mom, you know, it was so much easier for her to project her rage at like the Arab patriarchy at me, her child who was a drag queen because, you know, it was such so much smaller and more specific and it, it kind of projected a lot of her fears back at her. But it was crazy that she went in on me, her, like, child who was also victim to, as you say, all this crap that she was victim to in the Arab world. So I think, I don't know, I don't know whether it's just because trans people have become an easier target or a scapegoat for the thing that they're really mad about, but it's really, 
really annoying. And, you know, when you re- when I read that JK Rowling post, it's like crazy how a lot of them will be like, I was sexually assaulted, therefore trans people. Like they never make an act, you know, it's like, it's such a, such a bad, I don't see how they can attribute the blame, but it's where we are right now in the UK. It's so distressing. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think a lot of it has to like need to heal from kind of past trauma. Mm. Like, like I, I guess, I, I don't know if this is a good take, but um, if you experienced, like we have to do what we can as a society to be kind of ethical and push for like, you know, moral, each individual to kind of be moral and figure out their own stuff. But if you've experienced trauma, it's kind of, on yourself and the individual to find a way to heal from that. Mm-hmm. Um, no one else can do that for you, for one thing. And, you know, it should, it's not really fair to expect trans people, for example, to, to, to or like any group of people to go out of their way to help. Not, mm-hmm. not to go out of their way, but to, to be able to help you for something like trauma or kind of emotional stuff. Mm-hmm. Especially when those group people are separate from you as an individual. As as opposed, actually, do you know what? I think a good comparison is when kind of men, meninists, as they call them, expect feminists to go out of their way to make life better for men. Because, you know, they'll, they'll say things like, you know, men aren't necessarily treated equal in courts and that feminists should go and fix that. When usually it's like, well, no, women, feminists are kind of working on women's issues. Mm. Um, that's something that men kind of need to group together and establish kind of a healthy, emotional male masculinity. And find a way to kind of push for those rights, mm. you know. Uh, but I think that's kind of what they're doing. They're kind of they're claiming to be feminists, but then expecting trans people to work, not even to work for them, but the trans people just disappear. I I don't know. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's awful. Uh, like the UK, I've actually some um, kind of YouTubers and stuff that I watch who are UK based. I've I've kind of stopped watching now because every time they kind of come on and talk about what trans experience of living in the UK, I'm like, it's More very me, different. I mean, I feel like on the ground, especially among young people, like I do think the gender critical media lot are basically like a small minority of very middle class, um, very white feminists. I think. Yeah, you know, second wavers like. You know, if you just look at the the sales of Sean's book, The Transgender Issue, like it's beaten everything else. I think on the ground, they are reactionary because things are actually changing and they have the media, but it's actually a small sect of just quite vocal, powerful people. Ultimately, I just don't think they can win because most young people disagree with them and the world is changing and becoming more empathetic. And so... You know, I think I almost see the the kind of crazy gender critical uproar as like I don't know an almost panicked final breath of something. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's just being hopeful. You know, there's something else that you're. It, I have been thinking like there's there's a parallel with this in like past history. Mm. Uh, oh, I obviously sorry. Like the the gay movement, like the well, it's gay. The section twenty and the gay liberation. Oh yeah. Uh, you know what I mean, like like people who are queer but not trans, kind of because those rights kind of came first and the whole AIDS movement and stuff like that. Because there was what's your name? There's a Margaret Thatcher who was that really horrible politician. Yeah, yeah, she was who no teaching about gay people in school was. Yes, so they had won the. I think they they had decriminalized homosexuality in Britain, 
and then sixties, I'm pretty sure. And then the AIDS crisis kind of happened, and because the gay community couldn't fight because they were obviously like dealing with a disease that spread rampant, a really horrible one, uh, they turned around and took the opportunity to take away the get the that they decriminalized being gay again. Oh, and then also, of course, I still said they um you couldn't talk about being gay around that, and it was all banned and like oh my god, I don't know. And then these are the kind of people that turn around and say, but my freedoms. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess it's just taking an opportunity to when um, I guess people are in a weak moment. I want, I want, oh God, I don't think I should say AIDS is a weak moment when they're just dealing with something else and being like having a processing issue and then to swoop in and be like, oh, we'll introduce section 28. You can't like talk or influence young people to like be gay or let them know it's a thing. It's like, it's up to them we can't promote that kind of ideology mm. and i think that's what those other rich people are like girl we can't go through this again i mean Even- but i do think the fundamental weird thing that's happened is that gender critical people have tried to frame transness as an ideology which it isn't actually in my opinion it's just yeah no or like you know they talk about trans people as an ideological mo- movement, but there's no headquarters, you know, there's no like manifesto. It just manifests in different people in different ways. And it's mostly just people trying to live their lives. But I do love this quote that you have in your book about drag that I know it is specific to drag that it's, I want them to be so consumed by their sheer profanity. Is it profanity of their existence that they move themselves to tears with every motion? What did I, I say? Oh my God, I have a weird accent. It's, I want them to be so consumed by their sheer profundity. Is that a word? Yeah. Of their existence that they move themselves to tears with every motion. I think that was when you're talking about just moving slowly in drag and letting people know that this is your moment. You mm-hmm. should save it yourself. And I think it was, do you, you teach drag queens as well? And I think that's a good kind of place to kind of start to end this conversation. Because even I, I just remember as a child, you know, as a teenager being, I guess made fun of the way I walked, so I know this is not the same. And that sometimes I think I developed a strut to like counteract that because people were like looking at me anyway. So I was like, I'm just going to strut around this ugly ass Catholic school. Mm. And it's like, mm. totally. it was just a beautiful thing that I've never heard seen so distilled so beautifully so thank you oh thank you yeah no yeah it's an exercise that i don't teach that that much drag but when i have invited onto drag courses or stuff or like beginner drag courses one good exercise is um just getting everyone to walk as slowly as possible across the room and to kind of just really enjoy the majesty of just sort of walking and being because um you know, I do think drag is ultimately about taking up space in like a world that has taught you that you don't deserve any space. And I actually learned that from a non-binary drag queen called Victoria Sin, who when they're in drag, I mean, they speak really slowly, they walk really slowly. The whole thing is like about stopping time and they don't really do much on stage. I mean, they're an amazing performer, but part of their performance is like sitting on a chair for like five minutes and making that the most epic moment ever. And I just think that's so powerful. Yeah. Uh, Glamour has, 
Um, so yeah, so you're both based in Ireland, right? Yeah. We're in in Ireland or Northern Northern Ireland. Oh, the South. We're both in the South. Um, it's better there in terms of the media response to trans people, right? Than than the UK. Um, I it... think it kind of is, but not. Yeah, it is, but it's more so like I don't want to say we're a secret, but we're like we only come up for stuff that is like a controversy or the. We have a medical place called Lachlanstown that's quite antiquated compared to other systems. And in one of their national newspapers, the Irish Times, people have been coming in in the opinion pieces to state quite clearly their disdain and just overall horror at like trans people emerging. So it's, I guess they're being sneaky about it. It's not like we don't have anyone like... Lionel Shether or whatever her name is. Is she right? She is she right for Ireland newspapers as well? She's evil. Well, I don't think so, but I just know whenever I see something in the UK or the a couple of years ago, she was someone who was like, but yeah, I guess where it's a sneakier like kind of thing than the UK. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like yeah. I think the, the big thing is definitely the Irish Times been doing quite a few pieces. Um, I love the opinion though. It's like this is your opinion, and they even brought in a psychologist or a three psychologists who were like, we need to, because we, I didn't realize until a couple of years ago that conversion therapy is not banned here, but these psychologists want to have conversion therapy banned for everyone, but trans people, because it's like, think of the young trans people. Oh God. Yeah. Think of the children. I know. Yeah, it's that such, kind a moral of panic, such a moral panic buzzword, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Don't let the children think for themselves. Mm. Think for the children. They don't need to think. They need to be good Christians. <laughs> I suppose religion's much more prevalent there than it is here. Yeah, because it's like there's schools that are run by religious orders. There's hospitals that is run by religious orders. And it's, I thought as a child that it was like, oh, we are like Catholic, but it's like, we're just going to do what we're supposed to and teach children and not be like bigoted and kind. And like, ugh. but then you have like stuff that, abortion access isn't very accessible still even with the repealing of the AIDS so it's like I think overall the weird thing about Ireland is that we kind of have this kind of conservative leadership as in like you know the politicians in the church but the people are actually quite like libertarian Mm, yeah that's interesting yeah so like the the media can often be quite conservative whereas like and I, I think that most Irish people just have an attitude of like Look, it doesn't affect me, so I don't give a fuck. Like, yeah. um, at least like growing up. I might have to run soon, by the way. Yes, <gasps> but I just like to say thank you so much for your time with us and to hear talk about your book, Life is a Unicorn, which uh, get in good bookshops. I mean, good bookshops, people. Yeah. And would you like to promote anything else before you go? No, that's all good. Thank you so much. It was so uh, nice. To talk to you what about. was your dates for your um, show? Oh, oh yeah. It's at the Soho Theatre in London between the 4th and 9th of October. Thank yeah. you so much. Glamoroo people. See, thank you. Thank and um, you. we're just going to give a big thank you to Tony, uh, Tony Groves as well, who owns the Tortoise Shack, who kind of hosts us. He donates some microphones. So if you're hearing any kind of better audio quality from me and Jill today, that's why. So thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Amru. Goodbye. Bye.